something today with the apples. Yeah, what do you think we should make with all these apples? We can make some apple pie. At the time of this conversation, one of our neighbors had just been put in hospice. Come on, Mom, let's make some. Let's make apple. You know what? I also had another idea. What? I was thinking we could make an apple pie for our neighbors across the street. We didn't know him all that well, but he and his wife were the first neighbors to greet us when we first moved in. We would sometimes see him and his wife walk around the neighborhood. They would always smile and wave, and they've always been so kind to our kids. Because I don't know if you remember the neighbors, there was one who brought us brownies when Margo was born. Well, so her husband is in hospice now. So I thought it would be nice if we could maybe make them an apple pie. At first, my son Leon was focused more on the pie part of this conversation. Sure. Now let's make some for us. Could we make some now? But then later, he asked this. Is hospice a disease? And I tried my best to keep my answer simple. No, hospice is like when doctors say that a person has six months or less to live, like they, that's what they think. And then so they put a group of people together to help care for the person so they're comfortable as they start approaching their end of life. Oh. Well, shouldn't he be dead when we can't see him anymore? Well, this is where I wanted to provide some sort of silver lining say something to ease the sadness I could hear in his voice. But instead, I told him yes, at some point we won't be able to see our neighbor anymore, and we don't know when. And then I paused. I wanted to let my son guide where he needed the conversation to go next. And once again, his thoughts went back to pie. Okay, um, um, let's make first our apple pie. Gotta love you children. Make our apple pie first? Yeah. Okay, well, we can make our apple pie, and then do you think that they would like an apple pie? I think so. They would love apple pie. Let's, let, okay, come on. We spent the next hour making apple pie, apple muffins, and then Leon wanted to also paint our neighbors a picture. I want to try and do a picture of a house. Okay. His heart is so big. And his kindness runs so deep. Why do you want to do a house? Because I want to show them love. As I watched him paint, I wondered how much of our conversation he was taking in. And then after he finished his painting, he said this. I hope he doesn't die today. Yeah, I don't think he's going to die today. Why? Oh boy. Kids do always have the best questions. Well, because I think he was just um, put in hospice, so, but I actually really don't know. I don't know much about the situation. Oh. When a person's put in hospice, you don't really know when they're going to die. But usually doctors think it's probably going to be within six months. He really was taking it all in, at his own pace, in the way that he needed to. Several days after this conversation, our neighbor was taken to inpatient hospice to help get his pain under control. He died several days after that. 
Leon and I continue to have conversations about our neighbor and how sad we are for his family. What struck me the most about the conversation I had with my son that day was how hard it was for me to talk about when our neighbor might die. I realized I didn't have a definitive answer. I didn't know the situation, so of course that's the main reason. But in the bigger picture, it made me wonder whether any of us can accurately predict when someone is going to die. And then this question got me thinking about what this all means for my podcast, which is centered around a prognosis, a timeline, six months or less. So I decided to reach out to someone who has grappled with how to answer the question, how much time do I have, Doc? And that person is Dr. Michael Fratkin. Dr. Fratkin is a father, a husband, a brother, a son, a palliative care physician, and the founder of Resolution Care. By using telemedicine, Resolution Care provides compassionate palliative care that transcends distance and treats the whole person wherever they live. I met Dr. Fratkin several months ago, and honestly, I don't know where this podcast would be without him. He has made me think and has helped me look at things through a wider angle lens. He has also connected me with several of the incredible people I've interviewed on this podcast. Jennifer Dunn, a patient of Dr. Fratkin's who you may remember from the last episode, describes the team at Resolution Care as a powerful and helpful ally. She told me once, confronting mortality can feel incredibly lonely. So walking that path with the support of experts that have walked it countless times before is comforting. Now, before we get started with my interview with Dr. Fratkin, I do want to make the distinction that palliative care is not hospice. Palliative care is an extra layer of human-centered support that can be given at any point during a serious illness, whereas hospice is comfort care usually given during the last six months of a person's life. And now, my conversation with Dr. Michael Fratkin. Well, I wanted to first start off just by thanking you so much for joining me today to have a conversation about prognosis. This is something I've been really looking forward to uh, the past couple weeks. Me too, Alexandra. And uh, I know it's, it's a big topic, and I've been thinking a lot about where to start. And I thought maybe we could start with actually talking about the title of my podcast, um, because I think it plays nicely into just a larger conversation about prognosis. And when I first set out to do this podcast, I was really interested in interviewing people who are very near the end of their life. And so at the time, it seemed to make a lot of sense to me to draw a line in the sand with six months or less, um, because that's a criteria used for hospice. And so I remember when I first met you, um, I shared with you some of the challenges that I was facing with finding people to interview. And you had a lot of great insights. And what really struck me, I think, the most was you had some thoughts about my title. And so I'd love for you to talk a bit about that some more. I think you used the word flub. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I guess I could, I could talk about that quite a little bit. You know, it, 
it might have been better to call it six months more or less. Mm. Um, because the nature of human mortality is one of the fuzziest realms of experience and consciousness that there really are. We've in in the hospice benefit was born in about 1983 and they issued this sort of criterion this sort of boundary around six months or less as a prognostic guess and it has been nothing but uh, confounding and confusing and frankly has excluded people uh, from hospice care that could really benefit from the needed, robust support of a whole hospice team for more than a few days. In fact, it's because of the six-month prognosis criteria of hospice that um, half of people die with less than two weeks of hospice care. Mm. Part of the phenomenon is that doctors hate to be wrong. Doctors don't like to sign their name to any kind of prediction that could potentially turn out to be wrong. Um, So they delay and put off until things are oftentimes terribly out of control and accelerating at high velocity towards that last breath. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sensitive, and that's probably why I was so passionate in our first conversation, the negative impact on uh, on people, how they get excluded from the kinds of support that can mean so much, that I see mean so much every day um, because of this, this crazy six-month prognosis piece. Um, the reality is, is doctors really stink at making this prediction. In fact, they always, uh, in multiple studies that have been done, uh, when they compare the predictions the doctor made to the actual outcome of when a person passed away, um, doctors always are 30 to 50% longer in guesstimating because doctors are ever optimistic. Doctors always want to look on the bright side um, despite um, the experiences that they have. So there's that, that's the, that's the reason why I was giving you a hard time about flubbing it. (laughs) Well, I really, I appreciate that because I think it really speaks to the uncertainty of it. And I'm just curious how doctors even attempt to determine a prognosis. What are some of the things that you all look for in trying to figure that number out? There is a, a, Kind of a pretty solid array of academic research looking at predicting death. And what's interesting and shouldn't be too surprising is that they're pretty good at predicting death for populations, for cohorts of similar people. But as we know from um, maybe our high school uh, introduction to statistics, that phenomena distribute themselves over a bell-shaped curve. Mm-hmm. There's a number of standard deviations that define a peak and a couple of valleys on either end. And most people start to cluster towards the center of that uh, peak of the bell-shaped curve. But any particular individual person is just a spot 
on that cloud of possibility. The problem is, is that you can make predictions about populations based on a set of criteria that gather people together, but you can never tell what that one person sitting in front of you uh, is going to manifest. You just can't. They could be way out on the bell-shaped curve, they could be right down the middle of the bell-shaped curve, but they're never predictable as individuals because there are so many other variables that the sort of uh, non-linear mathematics of it all, the chaos and the, and the variability uh, is such that you really can't say from a population what an individual will experience. I have this conversation with people and some people grasp the concept um, I say to them, the only thing I know for sure about the future is it hasn't happened yet. And they sort of get that. Um, but they say, but how long do you think I got, Doc? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So people do attach a lot of importance to this concept of prognosis. And doctors attach a lot of uh, importance to it, as well as a lot of gravitas to these conversations. Mm-hmm. And it's a very nerve-wracking tension that leads to miscommunication over and over and over. I mean, people want to believe, and doctors sometimes believe that they can project into the future as if people are credit cards with an expiration date, and we're just not. We're complex, multidimensional systems. Um, We see people die of a broken heart. There's something called Takasuba's uh, phenomenon where um, people have been married, say, for example, for many, many years. They'll die within days of each other with no prior for the second person, for, with nothing but this spectacular depth of grief mm. as the cause of yeah. death, right? You can't predict who's going to do it that way. And so, yeah, we put so much importance on uh, what we absolutely cannot do. And we don't spend the time to sort of unpack what's necessarily impossible. So we could come up with predictive models that cluster people with congestive heart failure, with class three symptoms and um, multiple hospitalizations in a year. And if we get a thousand of them, we can define pretty accurately uh, what their average duration of survival would be. But I absolutely know that one by one by one, these folks are entirely unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Now, palliative care doctors, we talk about this quite a lot. Oncologists, because they make so many clinical decisions on the basis of cohort, on the basis of clustering people with a particular kind of a cancer, with a particular stage of disease, and a particular uh, set of other medical problems stacking up, they they think in those terms because that's how they select treatments. And so they generalize the best population-based information to guide treatment to some kind of a magical ability to predict what that person in front of you is likely to experience. Mm-hmm. So if doctors really look to that information or want to try and figure out the prognosis for treatment purposes... Why do you think it is that uh, patients and uh, loved ones want to so badly also know their prognosis or some sort of timeline? Well, there's, there's a bell-shaped curve of uh, how much they want to as well. There are some people in some cultures where you're not to 
talk about that at all. Mm-hmm. Either death entirely and or certainly timing of death. There are people that don't want to know the sex of their babies. And there's other people who want to know, you know, is it a boy or is it a girl or is it somewhere in between, you know? So people are different. And um, I think the key, here's the secret sauce of palliative care, is we actually don't take care of any patients that are a part of some population or cluster of similarities. We take care of people, Mm -hmm. individual human beings, living their own story with their own infinite number of variables that define their very unique status. That's where, at least when we're doing it right, I think, we're doing it my way, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's where we start. Yeah. (laughs) You know, is that, and and so I I really do frequently remind people I can't know their future, Mm -hmm. but I can learn about their past, I can get a sketch of their nature, and then I can accompany them through the present and immediate future to make choices that reflect their values, their beliefs, their sensibilities, their preferences, Mm -hmm. right? But I have to start not with how do they fit into some superficially defined scientific categorization schema. I have to start with who are you? Right. What makes you tick? What's important to you? When we get to prognosis, they let me know sort of what their sensibilities are. Some of them say, you know, what day and what time do you think I'm going to die, Doc? And I'm like, I don't know. But some people, you know, need for practical purposes, some information to help them guide uh, the choice making that's in front of them. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, for the mother of a child uh, they might have some very important tensions around the difference between I'll be dead in a month, I'll be dead in six months I'll be dead in a year Mm -hmm. some may be capable of staring right into the sun staring right at that problem and want the best possible um, estimation for how long they might have to survive And in those circumstances, I give them the best possible estimation after my disclaimer that the only thing I know about the future is it hasn't happened yet. There's never been another you. You're the only one that has ever walked in these particular shoes in these particular circumstances. So I I let them know up front that my crystal ball is cloudy and flawed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then I never give a particular time, like six months. I only give ranges of time. This is a sort of convention in the field as well of palliative care. We tend to talk about minutes to hours, hours to days, days to weeks, weeks to months, months to years. And then people say, but, 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 and I'll take it as far as I can go. And I could, I could tell them the kinds of things that will let me know that things are changing in some predictable fashion. Sometimes there are illnesses that have stereotypical sort of progress. The, steep, the, the slope of the curve isn't quite as easy to narrow in on, but the direction of the curve is, is pretty clear. So people with uh, common cancers... 
manifesting in common ways have a natural history or a trajectory, right? Mm -hmm. Which can be interrupted by the treatments that are provided, uh, the sequencing of the treatments, complications that may arise, their age, uh, other medical problems, um, other psychological or social problems or mental health problems, right? These things all have enormous impact on the physiology of the person, right? So I talk in ranges and I unpack my own uncertainty and um, that oftentimes provides enough orientation for people to start making the decisions that make sense to them. You know, for, for me, if you told me I was going to be dead in a month, that's really different than I'm going to be dead in three months or six months. Right. And the way that I would approach that time frame mm-hmm. um, might be really different. So I give them as much orienting information as I can. And so how has your communication about it with people evolved over time um, in your own career as a palliative care physician? I mean, in the beginning of your career, did you try and focus more on very specific numbers and has that changed? Or did you always just have a sense that these more general ranges were sort of the way to go? This job and this role has been a welcome evolution of greater and greater humility. (laughs) I think I started as a, oh, a really bright and fancy education guy. (laughs) I knew so much, right? And I was wrong um, with individuals. I've probably been relatively right across the group of people that I've cared for over time, but I definitely thought I was more right (laughs) before (laughs) I started paying attention to what actually happens. And so can you tell me just about what that was like for you, those times that you were wrong? Yeah, I have been wrong many times. I'm thinking about um, early in my career as a palliative care consultant in a hospital, I would walk into intensive care units where people with multiple medical problems would have hit the skids and really have multiple organ system dysfunction, their kidneys, their liver, their heart, their lungs, they were a mess. And uh, I walk in and uh, reading the tea leaves, I felt like I knew the right thing uh, to do was to um, withdraw life support and let them pass away. Uh, in a a more natural fashion. And um, many times I'm sure that was incredibly useful to families um, by taking the responsibility for um, having their hand on the plug Mm -hmm. by giving them support for understanding that the chances are very, very low that Judith or Roger uh, can recover and restore themselves to life but I'm thinking about one guy Michael who um, was this terrible raging alcoholic and was involved in an assault where he experienced a terrible traumatic brain injury and um, had recovered marginally to that and if it wasn't for his sister and brother-in-law that have um, cared for him so attentively and beautifully for such a long time, 
the first time I met him, he was, you know, definitely in a threatened situation with a complication of an aspiration pneumonia where he'd gotten stuff from his mouth and his food down into his lungs and had respiratory failure, was on a ventilator, his kidneys were failing, he needed dialysis. And I looked at that situation and they were like, oh, Michael just can't make his way out. And then they were committed that we support him and that we do all that we could to give him a best chance at recovery. And he's done that over the five or six years that I've known them. He's done that four times. Wow. Now, the first time it happened, I was sure we were doing the wrong thing by persisting um, with, uh, with life support measures. Uh, the second time after he had had, you know, six or eight months of going to music festivals and laughing and being cared for and loved on by uh, his sister, I, you know, I was like, well, hmm, okay. The second time it happened, I still thought it was a little bit crazy. Mm -hmm. But then another year or two of uh, really bright, uh, engaged living, despite how compromised he is cognitively, He's just a joy, mm -hmm. and that's where he lives. So the third time and the fourth time, I'm like, well, um, I'm seeing that he's losing ground very gradually in between these episodes, but I absolutely trust his sister and brother-in-law to guide me and how intensively um, to, to respond to the next or the next or the next problem that he might have. So Michael's a good example of being dead wrong and having the good fortune to enjoy how wrong I was. Wow. What an amazing lesson. That's really incredible. Oh, I got a million of them, Alex. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Well, so with the people who really sort of continue to want a number, how does that conversation about uncertainty um how do you continue to have that with people um, if they continue to ask for a number? Oh, sometimes it becomes this sort of, um, it becomes this sort of cognitive uh, dance, uh, <laughs> kind of uh, a play. I mean, you can, you can hear the way that I like to communicate and um, I, I will play kind of like, we'll fence and parry about the whole thing. And, <laughs> um, if, and if they really pin me down and, uh, want me to pick a day on the calendar or a week on the calendar, um, I do that, but I do that after <laughs> really, uh, uh, illuminating the uncertainty related to, uh, the answer that I'm about to give. But if they want my best guess, I'll, I'll guess. But I'll, I might tell them how bad I've come to realize I am at guessing. Mm -hmm. Well, so it seems like from what I'm hearing, I mean, people can use it for the prognosis for practical purposes. So what else do people in just your experience really like to focus on when they're nearing the end of their life? It's uh, such, a, such an awe-inspiring phase of life. Um, and before I unpack that, I'll say, and it's a mess and it's filled with pain, uh, sometimes, uh, suffering, uh, grappling, 
reconciling. It's all, it's filled with lots of stuff, this last part of life, however long the chapter lasts. But it is a quite awe-inspiring experience to have the privilege to watch how people navigate that. And there are things that I have observed over and over in people. Um, One thing to think about, as people move closer to their death, their sphere of attention starts to shift from the broad world and universe and current events and uh, favorite television shows or favorite basketball team or whatever. It starts to shift more inward. The sphere starts to contract. Things over time, they tend to become a bit more inward. So um, for people like me that I'm constantly interested in engaging with information and other stuff around me, you see people like that start start to let go of their attention to the news. Mm. Um, uh, I think of one guy who used to go every Thursday to go play pool with the boys, and he started missing those about six or 12 months before his death. It was really about the only, he just, it, it, it wasn't as important as it used to be until he, and, and he was still physically able, but there was a shift in his attention away from the things that live at the entertaining but peripheral edge of the sphere, right? Mm-hmm. And that phenomenon where people come inward They stop wanting to go out. They're able to sit without the television on, maybe. People sit more quietly. Um, People have less time for their acquaintances, more time for their intimate friends or family. And they just, that that, um, diameter starts to continue or continues to contract until people are in the sort of more active part of dying where um, they may not have much interest in any of the things that seem to animate the middle part of their life, Mm -hmm. except for the relationships that they have, or some nostalgic um, reconciliation about uh, either celebrating the joys of their life or lamenting the regrets that they might have, And then slowly but surely, they just keep coming inward until their activities are limited and they don't maybe leave their bed. Hmm. And they, you know, maybe even sleep more and eat less and drink less, arousing sometimes with, you know, totally preserved lucidity to interact with the people that they love and dismiss the people that are that they like Mm -hmm. (laughs) and as they change in their physiology because of the changes in what they take in or the advancing or progress of whatever the underlying medical problem is um they sleep more they eat less and drink less and sleep more and wake up only to smile or to say i love you or to just look at the people that they love and the environment that they're in regarding their existence. And then they don't wake up mm-hmm. and begin an even smaller journey inward 
And what it feels like in observation is that they're, they're, they're kind of going down a stairway to some special room in the middle of them where there's a switch mm-hmm. <laughs> or a button <laughs> or some place inside of themselves where they can hit that switch or push that button to disentangle themselves from the body that no longer can guide them. Now, some people go all the way into that room and like sit down next to that switch or dangle their feet over the edge and seem to hang out there in a, a almost a supra-physiological fashion. I have seen people, I have a woman I think of all the time who um, her family was in great distress. They came to her in the hospital. She had metastatic breast cancer. She was in terrible pain, having recurrent seizures. And the family was like really struggling with each other. And in order to control her symptoms, we had her on a tiny drip of medicine and her consciousness was suppressed beyond reaching her. And she wasn't getting any extra fluids. She wasn't getting any food. She was just getting medicine and a trickle of fluid to drive the medicine in to keep her seizures from happening and to keep her pain under control. And she lasted 23 days. Wow. 23 days on nothing, on air and medicine. But what was happening in that room was that her son and her daughters needed every bit of that time to create new and more robust relationships that would sustain them all for the rest of their lives. Wow. And it was exactly the right amount of time for her to survive. And and nobody would predict that. We say that people who stop drinking are usually gone in three to five days. We say people who stop eating, if they continue to drink, go three weeks, four weeks. But this was, you know, it's like almost magical. Mm -hmm. And these kinds of things start to happen towards the very end of life and really throw any kind of predictive modeling uh, down the toilet. Mm -hmm. That story reminds me a lot of my grandfather, which I who I talked about in a one of the earlier episodes, he also um, held on for quite some time and hospice kept telling us that today's the day. And so we'd all go and say goodbye. And then he would live several more days. And then hospice would tell us, well, today is the day. And it went on like that for quite a quite a few weeks. And so it really was interesting learning to just sit with that uncertainty and how to say goodbye multiple times and um it's an interesting time yeah i can speak a little bit to um there are some indications of you know physiologic changes that help me to zero in on hours to days days to weeks etc so it's not to say that there aren't clues about the pace at which a death is approaching for me, probably the best overarching um, guidelines or guidance comes from exactly that process. I'm really attuned to how outward or inward people are. That gives me a sort of a, a sense. And as I track the kinds of ways that they're 
turning away from a lot of the things at the periphery over time and sort of multiple snapshots, it gives me a kind of an arc that I can follow. And it's very right-brained rather than analytic process. But that's the kind of the overarching orientation. But as people start to lose weight and start to lose interest in food and start to restrict their physical mobility and function inside their homes and uh, inside their lives, that's also more information that starts to define a directionality Mm -hmm. and maybe starts to define a slope. As they get closer to the end, it becomes probably more predictable. Like I'm pretty good at minutes to hours. Mm. I'm a little bit less good at hours to days. When I talk about days to weeks, it starts to fuzz out and really weeks to months or months to whatever starts to be really almost not very useful. Um, But the physiologic changes that we see that really predict death within uh, a few days have to do with, are they taking nutrition? Are they taking fluids? Um, um, And then we can observe changes that occur in people's bodies. Um, It's kind of the final common pathway for death from almost all causes. We see changes in their breathing, changes in their fraction of consciousness. How much of the day are they awake and interacting and how much of the day are they sleeping well their sleeping starts to take over and and sometimes we see changes related to resistance to that natural flow some of it's uh i I, what the point i'm I'm, i want to make is that sometimes people resist that not everybody has this sort of beatific and gentle slide into that dark dark night right Mm -hmm. people have lots of unresolved materials and uh, differing capacities to have resolved them when they had more juice and vitality to do so. So it's not that uncommon for people to rock and roll a little bit at the end with uh, changes in consciousness, confusion, delirium. But then that's distinct from the phenomenon where people start to sometimes dream in these really lucid and vivid kinds of ways that they want to talk about. It's to distinguish that from when people start to have visions of people that have gone before them or that they have loved or people that are not present in the room, but actually feel their presence and engage with them and talk to them. And I I want to distinguish that from from hallucination, which we think about as a, a dysfunctional glitch in the neurochemistry and neuro functioning of the brain because it feels so different when people start to interact with angels or spirits or people that they love it has a very different quality to it and those are things that tell me we're we're making our way Mm -hmm. uh, towards the end so is there more a sense of peace when people see maybe other ones who have died before them um, is there a sense of peace that comes with that? Well, it depends about the person, right? So if it's somebody that you've done wrong, um, and I've seen that happen before, people who have really dark and shadowy backgrounds where they may have been a perpetrator of some violence or worse, uh, sometimes they find themselves confronted by uh, those things. But most often, almost all the time. People seem to be interested and curious and at ease while they interact with 
the wonderful things that I cannot see. Mm-hmm. Well, this conversation has been really interesting. And it, I mean, it makes me think about how there's obviously the scientific side to prognosis, but that so much of discussing it is, sounds like so much of an art. Mm. I, it, it feels most comfortable for me to think about it in those terms. And it, it feels that it's what uh, generates the kind of curiosity that have people feel seen and heard and, uh, and more open to reveal the actual nature of what's going on. When you take care of patients and they, and let's say you take care of cancer patients, they start to look like the categories and classifications and you start to interact with them as if they are the breast cancer in 502. Nobody sees themselves that way. And while people will accommodate and embody that identity, that really narrow black and white identity, uh, they certainly aren't comfortable revealing all the nuances of gray and the spectrum of color that that really defines who we are. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like we could talk about this all day, um, but I, I just want to end with just one question about what is your favorite thing about being a palliative care physician and really sitting in the space of uncertainty with people? My favorite thing about being a person is my awe, experiences of awe, being aware of my consciousness and opening it to experience beauty, surprises, things as they actually are. That kind of curiosity has me leaning into these terribly difficult situations with people and looking for small, medium, and large ways I can be useful and, and uh, yeah, like that. So it's just, it's just the, the, the curiosity about it, the letting go of having it all figured out or knowing how to fix stuff. Mm, mm-hmm. I'm much more interested in experiencing things as they are. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fratkin, for another conversation where I'm going to be thinking a lot after we, we end this recording. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. I hope we have another conversation. Sometimes I wish I had met Dr. Fratkin before I started this podcast. Because then maybe I wouldn't have chosen such a limiting title. Maybe I wouldn't have chosen a title that describes a part of life when a lot of people are actually starting to turn inward. But then it occurred to me, I like that my podcast surprises me. Sure, I have a direction of where I want it to go, but there's uncertainty involved. Much like what Dr. Fratkin was describing when talking about prognosis. So I'm going to welcome its evolving nature and see what else I can learn. Thank you again to Dr. Fratkin for the thought-provoking conversation and for your continued support. And thank you all for listening. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less.